This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A federal circuit court ruled Monday that the state of Wisconsin cannot impose a property tax on tribal lands, according to the Associated Press. The ruling comes after four Ojibwe tribes sued the state after it tried to impose property taxes on land within the reservations that have been sold to non-Native Americans before being bought back by tribal members. The court pointed to an 1854 treaty between the tribes and the state of Wisconsin and ruled that only Congress can negotiate over tribal sovereignty. An internal memo from the Wisconsin Department of Administration to the Dane County Board revealed that the projected construction costs of the jail consolidation project could only in- could even increase further. The county board's Black Caucus introduced a plan to scale back the jail project, reducing the planned construction to five floors and delaying the project 10 months. But this delay could increase construction costs by a projected 6 to $9 million, reports WISC-TV. The price increase would result from ongoing increases in construction costs, which are projected to continue to climb over the next few years. Even the previous plan would require an extra $10 million in funding to make sure the project proceeds, so the county board will have to put the jail project on the ballot in November as a referendum. Over the weekend, the Dane County Sheriff's Office held a gun buyback event, letting residents trade in their guns for gift cards for gas and groceries. The event resulted in 577 guns being purchased by the county, including 333 lawn guns, including rifles and shotguns, according to WKOW-TV. The event was partially funded by local organizations and businesses, including the Boys and Girls Club of Dane County and the NAACP Dane County Branch. A federal court affirmed today that Public Health Madison Dane County's mask mandate did not violate the free speech right of businesses. The decision comes after a former coffee shop in Middleton, Hellbox Cafe, sued after it had been issued a citation for failing to abide by the mask mandate in July 2020. Public Health Madison and Dane County received several complaints about Hellbox after the shop posted a sign declaring it was a, quote, mask-free zone, and issued several citations and eventually threatened to revoke the cafe's business license, reported the Wisconsin State Journal. However, the citations were eventually dismissed and revoking the business license was not pursued. Hellbox Cafe was a site of protests and social media pressure and subsequently closed. According to the court's ruling, the city's action did not rise to the level of retaliation against a business for exercising free speech. Moms on a Mission, a group of Madison East High School parents that arose after the school saw fights and student walkouts last school year, is struggling to find their role at the school, reports the Capital Times. The organization provided snacks and support personnel to the school. While the school district promoted community collaboration in its official communications, actual meetings between the local organization and the school administration have been slow to emerge. Moms on a Mission had hoped to secure funding from the school district so that it could continue to provide snacks, as well as be consulted with for future plans for school safety. And now for today's COVID-19 numbers. There were 1,376 new confirmed COVID cases reported in Wisconsin yesterday, with an average of 1,486 new cases being reported every day over the past week. Additionally, an average of 13.5% of reported COVID-19 tests have come back positive over the past week. There were seven confirmed COVID-19 deaths reported in Wisconsin yesterday. That brings the state's total death toll to 13,278 people who are confirmed to have died of COVID since the pandemic began. Dane County, meanwhile, has returned to a high level of community spread for COVID-19, according to the CDC. There were 89 new confirmed cases reported in the county yesterday, with 74 people currently hospitalized. And now on to today's top stories. 
According to a 2014 study by the Smithsonian Institute, between 365 million and 1 billion birds die each year due to collisions with glass windows and buildings. After Madison enacted an ordinance to address this issue in 2020, a conservative law firm filed a lawsuit against the city, claiming the ordinance was not allowed under state law. Today, a judge ruled that the ordinance is legal and that Madison can continue to mandate this bird protection measure on new buildings. WRT producer Nate Wuggiehout has the story. A Dane County judge ruled today that the city of Madison is legally allowed to enact an ordinance requiring bird-safe glass be installed in new buildings over 10,000 square feet. Madison first enacted their ordinance requiring bird-safe glass in 2020 to prevent birds from flying into large glass buildings. The ordinance requires dots, patterns, lines, or other features be placed on the glass to reduce the risk for bird collisions. Matt Reitz is the executive director of the Madison Autobahn Society. He says that there are multiple options available to developers to help prevent bird collisions. Uh, there are lots of ways that builders can do that. Uh, it could be putting dots on the glass. Uh, there's lots of ways to, to make design elements that go in front of glass that makes it uh, that, that changes that reflectivity. So there are a whole bunch of options available to builders to make their buildings more bird friendly, uh, including bird glass that is then visible to the birds uh, to prevent those collisions. But at the heart of the lawsuit lies within the cost those options would impose on developers. William Connors with development advocacy group Smarter Growth Greater Madison told WORT last year that even the cheapest bird safe glass costs double that of normal building glass. The lawsuit was brought forward last year by the conservative legal firm, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, or WILL, on behalf of five realty, development, and construction groups. The lawsuit claims that the ordinance violates a state law enacted in 2014 that creates a uniform building code throughout the entire state and does not allow municipalities to enact any additional or more restrictive standards. By enacting the Bird Glass Ordinance, the lawsuit claims, the City of Madison came in direct violation of that law. But the City of Madison argues that the ordinance is legal as it falls under the city's zoning code, which is not regulated by the 2014 law. Lucas Weber is deputy counsel with Will. He breaks down the two issues at the heart of Will's argument. Uh, so our legal argument was first that the zoning ordinances are not uh, exempted from the preemption. The, the statutory language does not say any non-zoning ordinance. It just says uh, municipal ordinances cannot be enacted. So, uh, so then the next legal question was, is the Madison Bird Glass Ordinance a building code ordinance uh, or is it a zoning ordinance? Uh, our argument there was that even if zoning ordinances were exempt, uh, that the Madison building, the Madison Bird Glass Ordinance was not a zoning ordinance, that it was a building code ordinance. Dane County Judge Nia Trammell ruled against Will today, saying that zoning ordinances are exempt from the 2014 law and that the Bird Glass Ordinance does act as a zoning ordinance. If zoning ordinances were covered in the 2014 law, Judge Trammell says in today's ruling, local zoning authority would become crippled and all zoning authority would then be subject only to state designations. Madison City Attorney Mike Haas says if Will's argument that the 2014 law affected zoning ordinances were to hold, it would have consequences affecting municipalities across the state. Uh, zoning regulations, I mean, it's a planning device for municipalities. 
for cities and villages to be able to set certain standards for the use of properties within the municipality so that uh, there is there's well thought out and comprehensive plans for the, for the growth of the entire city. Uh, this was a specific ordinance, of course, that was being challenged and the, the decision is specific to this regulation, but I think it does have a, a significant impact on the city's ability to continue to enact zoning regulations. Additionally, Haas says that today's ruling just reaffirmed what the city already knew. We were confident that the, the Burglass Ordinance was um, was valid when the council passed it, and the court ultimately agreed that it was a, a valid zoning regulation. Matt Reitz says that today's ruling is a win for the birds. Yeah, super excited because it's, of course, really great for the birds themselves, who definitely need uh, whatever help we can give them. Um, but it's great more broadly, too. It's, uh, it's wonderful because there are so many people who really enjoy birds and find benefits from them, mental and emotional health benefits. But also, uh, birds really matter. So they are uh, really important. We, uh, protecting birds is really important for all of us. So what's good for birds is really good for Wisconsinites. So this is a, this is a, great, a great decision, uh, great news for, for all of us, really. Lucas Weber says that Will intends to appeal the decision. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Help. Gannett is the largest newspaper chain in the United States, and now this media giant has started a new round of layoffs. WORT News Director Shelley Pittman reports. Gannett began its latest round of layoffs last Friday. That was after reporting a quarterly loss of $54 million. Though the company reported that paid digital subscriptions were up by 35% from last year, that wasn't enough to blunt its losses. In its second quarter statement filed earlier this month, Gannett attributed losses to a, quote, rapidly tightening macroeconomic environment. It also blamed inflation, distribution labor shortages, and price-sensitive consumers. Gannett is the largest newspaper chain in the United States, owning hundreds of newspapers across the nation. In Wisconsin, it owns 11, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, in addition to 10 others throughout the central part of the state. Understanding the severity of the cuts is hard to cobble together. Gannett is not releasing the number of laid-off employees, and a regional organizer with the union that represents Gannett employees told WORT yesterday that the union doesn't have a formal number of laid-off reporters either. According to reporting from the Pointer Institute from yesterday, more than 40 employees across 36 papers have been fired in this round of layoffs. Members of the News Guild Union, which represents Gannett journalists across about 50 newsrooms, held an hour-long lunch out last Thursday to protest the cuts they knew were coming. Debbie Shastri is a reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and president of the Milwaukee News Guild, which represents employees at the Journal Sentinel. Shastri told WORT last week why the chapter participated in the collective action. The reality is we're all finding ourselves doing more, the same amount of work, if not more, with less. When as soon as there's a bad financial, you know, moment, why is the first thought we need to cut people? Michael Reed is the CEO and chairman of Gannett. Formerly, he was the CEO of Gatehouse Media, which merged with Gannett in 2019. According to the Boston Business Journal, Reed made $7.75 million last year through salary, bonus, and stock. Meanwhile, the number of employees at Gannett since that merger has dropped by nearly half, 43%, from the end of 2018 to the spring of this year. And that's somewhat in keeping with the industry. 
A study from the Pew Research Center found that employment at newspapers dropped by 26% from 2008 to 2020. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Shelley Pittman. It may still be summer, but it feels like fall weather is here. But how long is it sticking around? WRT weather producer Caitlin Davis has what you need to know about the forecast. Madison's temperatures have been a bit cooler than we have been seeing in the last few weeks, but the weather is getting money excited for the fall season. Temperatures are currently sitting at 78 degrees with variable winds coming from the east, northeast at 8 miles per hour. Humidity is much lower than this morning, currently sitting at 48%. We still have a little over a month before fall begins, but the low temperatures of the days that we will be seeing is just a step closer to that fall weather. Temperatures are dropping into the high 50s late in the evening into the early mornings. The UV index reached the high category yet again today. Even though it has been cloudy out these past few days, the UV rays can still get through the clouds, so you still have to protect your skin. Today's grass and ragweed pollens were in the moderate category, but for the next few days, it should be in the low to none categories. Weather looking into the rest of the week is looking to be pleasant, but we could be seeing some storms. Tomorrow morning is starting off cool. It is not looking to reach the low 70s until 10 a.m., but will warm up fairly quickly after that. Tomorrow's high is currently looking to reach the high 70s into the low 80s with steady winds. Rain chances are coming Thursday and Friday, but we will most likely be seeing the rain into the weekend. Thursday is looking to have similar conditions to Wednesday, but Thursday into Friday have a slight chance for rain. Saturday and Sunday are both looking to have scattered storms and cooler temperatures with light and variable winds. With your WORT weather report, I'm your producer, Caitlin Davis. It's now 621 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Here in Wisconsin, more than one in four long-term care positions are currently sitting unfilled. Long-term care providers continue to struggle to help find for help for those in nursing homes, memory care facilities, and other assisted living centers. Earlier this month, a coalition of long-term care groups issued a report outlining the crisis and how it came to be. WRT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with one of those long-term care groups earlier today to find out how the issue can be fixed. I'm on the line now with Lisa Davidson with the Disability Service Provider Network. Lisa, thank you so much for talking with me here today. My pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about such an important topic with you. So just to sort of start things off here, Lisa, what what are long-term caregivers and who all counts as a long-term caregiver and what do they do? Sure. Well, you know, there are so many people that probably wear that hat and don't even know it. There are people that are caregivers that are family members, and then there are people who are caregivers in a more professional setting, um, like those that my members uh, represent. So the whole spectrum of different assisted living facilities to also assisting people with 
achieving their different employment goals. And now, so taking a look at this new report, it talks about the staffing crisis that long-term care providers are currently facing. What does the current staffing landscape look like for long-term care facilities? Uh, what, what does this report find? So this report was unique in that it really captured the moment of time at the height of the pandemic. And so it really gave us a snapshot of what the experience was for long-term care providers. And obviously, things have gotten worse. Um, It's no surprise, but the report really just helped validate that through the provider lens. And, you know, the the statistics coupled with the state of the hiring environment, which is so unique and, and challenging right now, and add into that the demographic data of Wisconsin as an aging state, Um, We really are faced with a perfect storm of needing to act, but we also have the perfect opportunity that's been presented to us through the Federal American Rescue Plan Act that invests millions of dollars into home and community-based services um, here in Wisconsin. And so the time is right for us to act now so that we can make sure that we have the workforce in place for the future because we know the need is only going to grow. Uh, The past couple of years have been challenging for every single person, but especially someone who's working in a long-term care facility, providing care to someone with intellectual developmental disabilities, um, providing care to people with all sorts of, of different needs and different abilities. It's been extremely stressful on top of their own personal lives. And so those that have remained in the field We just can't thank them enough, and we need to make sure that we're recruiting and retaining very high-quality level staff now and for the future. And then sort of looking into this a little bit, what's sort of driving uh, the staffing crisis that these long-term care facilities are facing? Sure. Well, it hasn't happened overnight. Um, My members at DSPN are entirely publicly funded through Medicaid. So both the state and federal government through Medicaid is our payer. And unfortunately, the reimbursement that we receive from Medicaid does not adequately cover the real cost of providing services. And obviously, wages for direct care staff are a very important component of that. So we've seen the year after year of an reimbursement continuing to grow. And so that gap of what it costs to provide services and what you're actually reimbursed has only grown. Um, And so we're looking at a situation where we haven't been paid adequately to cover the cost of care, and we have a unique workforce challenge right now. Um, We're seeing a very competitive environment that's emerging out of the COVID pandemic, and it's proving very challenging to keep up with all the different wage offers, the bonuses, the work flexibilities that we're just not able to compete with um, given the fact that we're publicly funded and not able to really be as nimble um, as uh, the private sector per se. Now, looking at this report, it sort of ends with a couple of things that can be done to address this issue that uh, we're facing here. What, so what sort of things can be done to address this issue? Sure. So, you know, it's, it's a multifaceted problem, but I would say really the number one thing that we can do is work together um, with the state, working with the Department of Health Services to 
really utilize the American Rescue Plan Act funds in a way that addresses um, some of the systemic big problems that we've been experiencing in, in long-term care. So our program in Wisconsin is called Family Care. And so what we have done um, collectively, the Long-Term Care Provider Associations, is been able to engage in dialogue with the department as they look at utilizing these new federal funds to establish a new um, rate setting um, schedule. So really looking at changing the way that providers are paid and moving to a new system that is based in data and grounded on the cost of care. And so that process is starting um, right now. We are working with the department and other stakeholders to inform that process and begin to move forward, um, ideally to have a new rate schedule for providers um, that we can agree on and begin to implement within the next two years. Well, Lisa, we are sort of coming up against the clock here a little bit. Do you have just any final thoughts on this report that you'd like to share with us here? Sure, I I certainly do. I I think that talking about um, provider reimbursement, ultimately what that's all about is being able to provide our staff the wages that they deserve, giving them the benefits that they deserve, elevating the profession of caregiving. And so it's not a one-size-fits-all approach, and it's going to take lots of different groups, lots of different people coming together to identify solutions and to implement them together. And so we are very excited to be part of that, and I'm glad to be able to share this information with you today. I've been talking with Lisa Davidson with the Disability Service Provider Network about the new report outlining the current staffing crisis faced by long-term care providers here in Wisconsin. You can find the full report online over on the WORT website. Lisa, thank you so much for talking with me here today. My pleasure. Thank you. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful, here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. For reasons lost in the mists of time, most annual apartment leases in the city of Madison expire on August 14th, and new leases start on August 15th. The result is a chaotic 24-hour period of temporary homelessness for thousands of Madison residents known as Moving Day. On yesterday's 8 o'clock buzz, host Brian Standing spoke with Carousel Baird, a host of a public fair here on WORT, and housing rights attorney with Community Justice, Inc. Brian talks with Carousel about the complicated nature of moving day and how to navigate the constantly changing world of residential housing in Madison. You know, as we mentioned in the introduction, there's this bizarre thing where all these leases uh, expire at the same time and then they're, you know, are re-signed again sort of the next day. Um, but there are some folks out there who are called sort of holdover tenants. And, and how does that situation arise and, and what, what's their situation as we move into yeah, this so chaos? A holdover tenant would be someone whose lease has expired, but they're still there. Oh, okay. Right? So they, they don't have a, a valid sort of written lease or even an oral lease to be there. There was an agreement that everyone agrees on that they're supposed to be up by a certain day. And oops. That day happens, and here they still are. Oh, boy. Um, 
So what happens is a couple of things. One, the landlord can say, get the heck out, Mm -hmm. and the landlord can go straight to eviction court. Uh, In other circumstances, while you have a valid right to be there, the landlord has to give you five-day or sometimes 14-day or sometimes 30-day, it sort of varies, kind of notice that says, hey, you're in trouble, do something, or I'm going to go to eviction court. But if you're a holdover, which means you have no right to be there, the landlord doesn't have to give you any kind of notice. The landlord can go straight to eviction court. Now, hopefully the landlord doesn't do that because that's costly and takes time. Hopefully the landlord and you communicate and say, you say, hey, I just need five more days. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if the landlord doesn't like it, if you need a few more days and you're going to be out, I can't imagine a landlord spending money to go to eviction court because they're going to lose by the time the court happens. It takes a couple of weeks to get your day in court. Um, So you should communicate. The other thing also is if you stay and pay rent like you normally would and the landlord accepts rent uh, that you paid, then you actually become a month-to-month tenant. You turn into someone that now actually has a legal right to be there, but then you also have legal obligations. So if you paid rent and you're like, look, I'm just staying for an extra month. I'm, I'm moving to Southern California where it's Never going to be winter, but I'm not moving until November. So I'm just going to pay rent and pay rent a couple more times, and then I'm going to just get the heck out of here with no notice. That's going to be a problem because now you have a month-to-month lease, and you're going to have to act like someone with a month-to-month lease, which means you have to give notice before you move out, and the landlord has to give you notice before they ask you to leave. This whole thing is just seems like, I mean, it's such a mess. I mean, how did this evolve, and why? Why do all these leases expire at the same time? I mean, it seems like it seems like in a you know in a capitalist system, yeah. there'd be some advantage to some landlords going. You know what? We're gonna we're gonna move that date a little bit just because you know we don't want to be in the mess with everybody else. How does this? How did this happen? I mean, I think that's a completely legitimate question. It is pretty bizarre. I don't know the history of it. I mean. Obviously, landlords must have decided it's more in their, they get a more bang for their buck to end at this time because there's enough people moving out that if they were to start uh, sooner or start later, they would miss people. Hmm. So I guess they have decided that that makes the most sense. But yeah, it's pretty bizarre because properties that have nothing to do with the university and sort of the student schedule that are nowhere near the downtown capital, they still have these regular, you know, ends in, in August and start in August. In fact, I had a friend who was moving here for a job and couldn't find an apartment in July. And had to tell the job, I can't start yet because I don't want to commute. She was moving from Milwaukee, and she didn't want to commute from Milwaukee and moved her start date until September because she couldn't find an apartment, for goodness sakes. All right, let's get back to uh, what you know, folks who are caught in this chaos can, can do to protect themselves. Probably one of the biggest things is uh, if you have an apartment and you're moving out, you put up a pretty substantial security deposit. What, what do yeah. people need to do to make sure they get that money back? Well, and I, I, I'll talk for 10 seconds about the word substantial there. There used to be a rule that the security deposit could only be equivalent to one or two months of rent. There mm. is no rule anymore. Oof. So I've seen security deposits that are $5,000 on a $1,000 a month lease. 
So, yep, yep, there is no rule. Thank you, Wisconsin legislature. Uh, there is no rule. So it can absolutely be a substantial amount of money. And once you move out, the landlord has 21 days to either return your security deposit in full or provide you an itemized list of deductions. They can't just say, hey, I took off $10, you know, $100 for cleaning. Or They've got to have more detail. Um, of why there are deductions. And they have to mail that out to you within 21 days. So sometimes you don't receive it until 25 days or so. But the postmark um, has to be 21 days after when you moved out. Uh, so a couple important things to note about that. Be sure to give the landlord your new address. Out or if you don't, make sure you have your mail being forwarded. And you can tell them, just send it straight to that apartment with my name, and it, it will be forwarded. Of course, that means it might take a little more than 25 days to do the process. But nevertheless, I think that's the most important advice I give to people is remember to give the landlord your new address so they can actually send that check to you or any deductions. If they don't do it within 21 days, your security deposit is now doubled. So if you gave a $3,000 security deposit, you now are owed $6,000. The landlord can still deduct from that, um, even if they don't get it to you in 21 days. If they take 35 days and they say, look, I deducted you know, $700 for this, this, and this, it's $700 minus double of your security deposit. That's what they owe you now if they take more than 21 days. And so uh, if you are lucky enough to find a new place and you're moving uh, into that, what's the first thing you should do? You know, the first thing you should do is take pictures. Mm. Thank goodness for everyone in their, in their phones and their cameras. Document everything. Because, you know, a question I get a lot is, how do I know how clean my apartment is? And deductions from security deposit for cleaning. There is no clear rule of what clean is and what clean isn't and how sparkling shiny it has to be but what it really has to be actually what the rules are is it has to be in the same condition as as it was when you entered the apartment minus normal wear and tear so you know what if these people really didn't dust you don't have to dust but you need to document that because the landlord is going to fight you on that perhaps um, so it's always good to just document the general condition of the apartment and also everything that's broken. There may be things that are broken that you're not going to tell the landlord about because you don't really give a darn, right? Oh, look, the the blinds are sort of falling off. I'm not going to write the landlord because I don't care if there's blinds on my windows or not. Well, things like that. But you still want to document it because... In a year or so, when you move out, you may be held responsible for those blinds unless you can prove that the break had nothing to do with you. Take pictures. Document it all. And that I imagine that applies to moving out, too. So, you know, you want to take pictures of what you did to clean the place so you can say, look, it looks the same as when I moved in, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Landlords are often deducting just the straight-up cost for cleaning because they sort of especially in bigger buildings, they hire people that just do a sort of a blanket clean of everything and then they charge every apartment a flat rate. But if you have documentation that, you know what, I left my place pretty darn clean, you didn't need a cleaner in there, that's important for you to know. And uh, so more and more people have uh, critters who live with them, you know, either pets or support animals. Are there different rules about how those uh, critters are treated in terms of moving into a new place? Absolutely. Pets and support animals are two different things. So if a property has a no pets policy, don't 
you know, don't bring your pet in there. You can't have a pet. And I know a lot of people that ha- move into apartments and they say, God, I hope they don't find my cat or they don't find my gerbil or they don't find my whatever. You know, as soon as you do that, you're in violation of the lease and that, that could be in trouble. Um, but a support animal is not a pet. The way the government sort of is phrasing it is that you treat a support animal as if it were a medical device. This isn't here because it's a pet. It's here because I need um, access to this animal for me to be able to deal with the challenges that I have in my life. So that's not a pet. And you, it, nowhere can prohibit you from having a support animal. What they can do, though, is ask for documentation. So you're going to either need to have documentation that you have a disability or a challenge and or documentation that this animal can, can meet the disability or challenge needs that you have. Sometimes you need two different documents. Sometimes one from a, a doctor can settle all of that. Um, but there are specific rules. And you should contact the Tenant Resource Center or look, you know, contact uh, Disability Resource Assistance to help you figure out what those rules are. But the important thing to know is that a support animal is not a pet, and a building that says no pets cannot prohibit you from having a support animal. And then uh, finally, let's talk about, you know, what happens if you uh, move into a place or you're there for a while and you have uh, a lot of problems with the the way the building's Mm -hmm. maintained. When Uh do you call the landlord and when do you say, you know what, I'm I'm calling the building inspector? You know, there's no hard and fast rule. You can always call the building inspector. In general, you should... You have to alert the landlord. They can't fix something they don't know about. Now, if they should have known about it or they reasonably should have known about it through reasonable inspection, that's an obligation of the landlord. The landlord can't say, I've not, I haven't seen the place in two years. I had no idea the bricks were falling <laughs> off the outside. That's not an allowable excuse. Uh, but in general, if right, your heat's not working. Every time you turn on the sink, it, it leaks into the the basin underneath the sink and gets everything wet. Uh, basic things like that. You need to tell the landlord right away. And thank goodness the courts have finally woken up and are part of the 21st century. Email counts. Text messages count. That is written communication. It doesn't have to be a formal letter. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't even have to be an email. Text counts. If you text the landlord and said my heat's not working. That's it. The landlord's on notice. They know. It's their obligation to now address it. If they don't, in a reasonable amount of time, absolutely contact the building inspector. The Madison building inspector is such an icon. They are so well appreciated and respected in the court system uh, by landlords and tenants alike. Whether you agree or disagree with what they find, they are very well respected, and what they conclude it can be incredibly helpful for tenants. All right, we've been speaking with housing rights attorney Carousel Baird uh, as we get ready for moving days. Hopefully, uh, all tenants survive the uh, the chaos. <laughs> but thanks so much yeah. for joining us, Carousel, on the eight o'clock bus. It's, it's been great talking. Thanks, Brian. Wisconsin's mustachioed wonder, the northern flicker, is about to start its annual migration. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg details why this is one of the more unique birds here in Wisconsin. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. 
Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about northern flickers because we just released one. Woo! We had a baby hatchling woodpecker that was here at our facility at the early part of the spring and summer, and it takes a long time for flickers to get to their full size and to rehabilitate them properly. Now, northern flickers are considered northern because they are found a lot in our area, right? Northern, if we're saying wild widespread, common, usually going to be up in like the anywhere from the northwest regions to the midwest to east coast. But we actually have two different kinds of northern flickers. We call them northern flickers because that's just easier to lump them together. But we actually have two different kinds and that's called the yellow shafted flicker and the red shafted flicker. And the difference is actually the color in their underwing. And we have this, you know, hatchier baby flicker that was starting to grow its first feathers in. And in the remiges or the uh, flight feathers, you could see the bright yellow shaft just coming in. And it was so cool to be able to see the difference between the baby feathers and the adult feathers at release, uh, which he was banded and released. I also say he because it is a male and there's a, a huge difference actually between males and females. One of the biggest things that people will look at is actually the face or the facial markings. Now, I like to call it a mustache or a mustachial stripe, but they call it a malar stripe. Uh, if you've ever seen a flicker up close, they have this like kind of cheek patch. And so it's different between the red shafted and the yellow shafted flicker. Uh, it's usually a gray facial color in the red shafted flicker, a yet more brownish coloration. So like in our area, we have yellow shafted and they're more tan in coloration. I, I'd call it more tan than brown. But the malar color, so that mustachial stripe, for males is black and for females it's more brown. But there's also a red crescent on the back of the nape in our yellow shafted flickers. So that's something that kind of gives them away. It's kind of like, you know, like those little cushions that you buy for a plane flight. A little, you know, the shoehorn U-shaped things. That's what it looks like on the back of the nape or the neck. And again, the shaft color is orange. So you can tell the difference between males and females based on their facial features. Um, but otherwise, they're actually a really large woodpecker. They're quite large, meaning their bodies are about, uh, you know, definitely more than 100 to 110 grams of body weight, which is pretty big. Uh, if you compare that to something like a blue jay, who might only be, you know, 90 to 80 grams, or a robin, who might be 70 to 80 grams. Uh, flickers are bigger than both of those two things, the robins and the blue jays, just by a little bit. Now, the flickers are a really interesting type of woodpecker because they forage on the ground most of the time. So if you see a really weird, large, tannish spotted bird uh, flopping around in the ground and foraging for probably insects because they really like to eat ants, they like to eat beetles and bugs, they're usually tossing stuff aside and just like flicking all of the vegetation from one side to the other using their beak. And they're trying to grab those little insects so that they can eat. And they've even been known, uh, according to All About Birds and the Cornell website to break open cow patties to find the insects inside. And I think that's pretty amazing. So they will be found on the ground. Uh, when they fly up into a tree, they have this really distinct white spot on their rump. Uh, so the rump patch is bright white. So if you see a bird foraging on the ground, kind of brown and spotted, but then you see it fly up and you see this bright white rump, uh, a lot of times that's going to be your northern flicker. 
They're also very loud, very vocal, and they will let you know it if they are around in the area. Uh, They have a very high piercing and chattery call. Very funny, very interesting. You should definitely look up the sound if you haven't. Uh, And there are sites out there definitely always are going to recommend the Cornell website or Merlin uh, to listen for calls, just so you can maybe get to know a little bit about your Wisconsin birds and their their sounds so you can identify them in the breeding period, especially. And then they are also uh, a species that tends to like more of the forested areas. And it makes sense because, you know, they're excavating holes for their nests in like the open tree trunks, uh, usually dead trees, large branches. But they also uh, apparently like aspen trees a little bit better. So that's one of their favorites. And then they also spend a lot of time foraging on logs that are like nurse logs on the ground, meaning that they're decaying or dead and they probably have a lot more insects, but they will also eat fruits and seeds. So in the winter time, when the bugs are not necessarily very plentiful, they will go ahead and eat uh, alternative foods. But otherwise they will spend a lot of time hammering into the soil or into the wood just to get all of the things that they like to eat. But for berries, they like, you know, wild cherries and grapes and elderberries. Uh, Those are some of our favorites to feed our birds at the rehabilitation center. And then they start doing their breeding and their mating in the spring season. So I know we're headed towards fall, which means, you know, they're done for the year. You know, this is uh, this woodpecker that we had, the the northern flicker, was a baby of this year. So hopefully next year um, when he comes back in the spring or they will stick around in Wisconsin as well at times. Uh, depends on kind of the food availability and the weather and temperature. But to decide when they want to have a mate, they will do something called a fencing duel. And it's the coolest thing. I've actually seen it in person when I've gone out bird watching, where they just like look at each other and they kind of like bob their bodies and their heads up and down and kind of do this like sword fight with their bills it's it's hilarious if you get the chance definitely look that up too because northern flickers you'll you'll know more than you want to know after this segment and by looking up some youtube videos but anyways it's one of our favorite birds a really cool woodpecker species Uh, i wanted to highlight it this week just because we released this one and we usually have a couple every year and so northern flickers are just one of those special species that we like to talk about and now you may know that we have the yellow shafted flicker most often here in wisconsin so uh, let's say you find a bird. Maybe you find a flicker. I mean, it is coming to the fall migration here soon. So a lot of our woodpeckers might be hitting windows on their migration, uh, depending on whether they're semi-partial migrants or full migrants. Uh, be on the lookout for species that might be sick or injured. Definitely give us a call at the Wildlife Center if you do find that at 608 608- Two eight seven three two three five, and otherwise, thanks for listening on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly. star of wildlife weekly the northern flicker right there the time is now 6 53 p.m and you're listening to the live local news on wort don't say it three times but the star beetlejuice suddenly shone a little less bright back in 2019 on this week's radio astronomy hosts dan rubarchuk and anthony taylor share an update on the superstellar mystery
Welcome to Radio Astronomy. I'm Dan Rabarczyk. And I'm Anthony Taylor. Today, we're discussing some recent updates on the star Betelgeuse in the constellation Orion. That's right. Last week, a new study was published by an international team of astronomers, led by Dr. Andrea Dupree of the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. The study addressed the surprising dimming that Betelgeuse underwent back in 2019. A bit of background on Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse is a star around 550 light years from Earth and is 17 to 20 times more massive than our Sun. Betelgeuse is the 10th brightest star in the sky and is located in the shoulder of the constellation Orion, making it one of the best known and most recognizable stars in the night sky. It has a distinctly red-orange color due to its status as a red supergiant star. It is near the end of its lifespan and will someday explode in a supernova. The story behind the new study starts back in October of 2019, when astronomers around the world noticed that Betelgeuse was steadily growing fainter. Measurements show that the star's surface decreased in temperature by about 30%, and the star's overall brightness decreased by a factor of three over a span of around three months. At the time, astronomers were unsure as to what was causing this effect. Some even speculated that this might indicate that Betelgeuse was about to explode in a supernova. By late February 2020, Betelgeuse began to brighten again, and quickly returned to near its previous stable brightness. During and after this process, astronomers have studied Betelgeuse further to figure out what happened during this mysterious dimming. Dr. Dupree's new study used the Hubble Space Telescope in conjunction with other ground and space-based observatories to find the cause of the dimming, a large ejection of surface mass from the star itself. It appears that in January of 2019, Nearly nine months before the start of the dimming, a portion of Betelgeuse's surface was ejected from the star. As this shell of hot material expanded away from Betelgeuse and cooled down over the following few months, it began to block the light from the star, causing the great dimming. Additionally, the area of the star from which the ejection sprung was left significantly cooler and more turbulent than the rest of the star, causing a decrease in Betelgeuse's observed temperature. As the ejected material continued to drift away from the star, it became less dense and less opaque, allowing Betelgeuse's full brightness to once again shine through. Interestingly, while our Sun is known to have regular coronal mass ejections, in which parts of its upper atmosphere are blown off, they are nowhere near as massive as the surface mass ejection from Betelgeuse. Dupree's team now suggests that while Betelgeuse's outer layers of photosphere have mostly recovered from the outburst, its surface is still very unstable. Fascinating. Additionally, while Betelgeuse used to exhibit a slight pulsation in its brightness that was regularly observed on cycles of around 400 days over the last 200 years, this pulsation seems to have stopped completely after the outburst. While it's nice to get some closure on the great dimming mystery, it's even more exciting to get a new puzzle to solve in the coming years. That's all for Radio Astronomy this week. Washburn Observatory is unfortunately still closed for repairs, but check our Twitter at Washburn underscore OBS for updates. Thanks for listening and have a stellar week.
And that does it for our show. Thank you for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Brian Standing with the 8 o'clock buzz, Jackie Sandberg, and the Radio Astronomy crew. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Buggyhop produced this newscast. And Shelly Pittman is a news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish Language News with the Nuestro Patio. Good night. 